You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello everyone, it's here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. Join our Patreon for extra episodes, interviews, extra content, and to help support the podcast and help us continue to do the work we do. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl to learn more. What would Caesar have done? I'm Jenny Williamson. And I'm Jen McMenemy. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. We are so, so thrilled to welcome Barry Strauss to the show. He's a historian, academic, author, and professor who has written major source material for some of our biggest arcs, including the Spartacus War and the Death of Caesar. His new book, The War That Made the Roman Empire, Antony, Cleopatra, and Octavian at Actium, discusses the infamous Battle of Actium, the battle where Mark Antony and Cleopatra went to war against Octavian and Agrippa for love, for supremacy, and for their very survival. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Jenny and Jen. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me on. So I'm just curious, why this battle? Why, of all the battles in all the world, you chose this one to cover? Well, I think in some senses it chose me, uh, partly because I had I had done a book on the death of Caesar, and I'd done a book on Roman emperors, 10 Caesars, that picked up with Augustus. So uh, this was kind of the missing link between the between the two of them. And also on a more personal note, so many years ago when I was a graduate student in Greece at the American School of Classical Studies at Athens, we went on a tour of the uh, archaeological trip to the Greek Northwest and we went to Actium and we saw the, um, the remains of Augustus's victory monument. It was in ruins then and two of my fellow students were planning to study it. In fact, they went on to have great careers studying and reconstructing this very monument. Um, Bill Murray and Costa Sajos, uh, both very eminent scholars. And so ever since then, I've been just fascinated in this battle and want to try to reconstruct what happened. So let's set the scene. We have done a very detailed series on Antony and Cleopatra, Lovers in a Dangerous Time. So we don't have to recount everything that happened to lead up to this, but we did drop those episodes in 2019. So it's been a while. So just as a reminder, what is the very short elevator pitch thumbnail version of the events leading to this battle? What's the elevator pitch? (laughs) An elevator pitch. (laughs) Sorry. I'll try. 
the Roman world, the Roman government had uh, seen itself devolve into a set of duels between two leading men, each one who wanted to be top dog, Marius and Sulla, Caesar and Pompey. And now in the latest one, it's Octavian and Mark Antony. Uh, and so they are facing off. They had agreed to divide up the Roman world with Octavian ruling the West and Antony ruling the East. And they have an uneasy truce between the two of them. Uh, they sealed the deal in the way that Roman uh, nobles often did with the dynastic marriage. Octavian married off his sister, Octavia, to Antony. And they had two daughters together. But Antony, as Roman men uh, often were, was not faithful to his wife. And he ends up having an affair with the most powerful woman in, in the world at the time, the Queen of Egypt, Cleopatra, who was also especially desirable. In addition to her own charms and incredible intelligence and talent, she is also the former mistress of Julius Caesar, by whom, so she says, she has had a son. So having Cleopatra gives one the rights to the mantle of Caesar. Antony, with Cleopatra's financial support, tried to make war on the Parthian Empire, Rome's only rival left, uh, and fails. Meanwhile, Octavian in the West, with the help of his friend and brilliant general and admiral Agrippa, manages to defeat his major rival in the, the West, the son of Pompey, Sextus Pompey, in a, in a naval campaign off Sicily. Antony in the East licks his wounds and regroups his forces to make a, another attack on Parthia. He manages to conquer the kingdom of Armenia uh, along the way, which was a great feather in his cap. But before he could return to the Parthian war, Octavian strikes. Octavian declares war. He says, this is the moment to defeat Antony once and for all before Antony becomes too strong by winning in Parthia. And Octavian, who is a very, very clever uh, politician, declares war not on Antony, but on Cleopatra, who actually is a Roman ally. And he tries to rally Italy uh, against Cleopatra. With mixed success, Antony and Cleopatra have prepared for this moment. They have built a fleet, a state-of-the-art fleet, an enormous fleet of 500 warships, including technically probably the best warships in the Mediterranean at the time. And they gather the fleet on the co western coast of Turkey, and they move westward to the western coast of Greece in the autumn of 32 BC. And there they are planning their next move. They're either going to invade Italy itself, or they are going to wait for Octavian and Agrippa to cross the Ionian Sea and come to them in Greece. In either case, they are prepared for a showdown on land and sea. How's that for the elevator version? You'd have to be in the elevator a long time, but <laughs> <laughs> I would so be in that elevator to keep hearing more. <laughs> I would too. <laughs> it's the elevator is stuck, but it's it's fine. I need to calm from my anxiety with like the best pitch ever. Like, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you. I'm glad. I'm glad. I'm like, I think I'm just asking you to summarize like the half of your book that was the lead up to the battle in, in five minutes. So this is a big task. It was a big task. <laughs> The biggest thing that like jumped out at me with what Barry had explained, and our, our listeners will know this too, is Pompey Sextus, who is Pompey's son. Pompey famously cleared up all the pirates in the Mediterranean. And my one of my favorite facts of that series is then his son becomes a pirate, essentially. Yeah. 
<laughs> I really feel like we didn't dive deeply enough into Pompey Sextus on our series just because we had so much more to cover, but he is so interesting. <laughs> I know. He is. He really is, yeah. He threatens to steal the show, and if we knew more about him, I'm sure that he would steal the show. This is a bit off topic, but I know you talk about him in your book. What are your fa- What's your favorite Pompey Sextus story that we should all know about? <laughs> well, there's this moment when his fleet is docked at Mycenaeum, so this is on the Bay of Naples, and uh, there he meets with Antony and Octavian, the three of them, and they make a deal. They agree to make peace among the three of them. There are all these promises made about uh, the Roman provinces that Sextus is going to be able to govern and his ability to return to, to Rome. And he invites Antony and Octavian on his flagship for dinner, and they come for dinner. And while they're on the ship, and I may get this wrong, I hope I get the details of the story right. But as I recall, while they're on his ship, one of Sextus's henchmen says, hey, boss, do you want me to kill them? Do you want me to kill them? And Sextus Pompey says, ah, you should have done it without asking me. But now that you asked me, I have to say no, because it would be dishonorable. Uh, see, <laughs> the story goes something like that. I feel like the the correct answer here is, I like your initiative. (laughs) I like your initiative. I like your initiative, but plausible deniability is a must-have in this situation. It's a must-have, plausible deniability. Also, it's it's very possible that Sextus thought about it and he said, I'm not sure I'd be better off with them dead because somebody will replace them. And uh, I might not be any further ahead than I am now. So... um, uh, better the enemy that I know. So that might have been a factor as well. Especially as you keep going down the list of like, who's going to come up the wrong next and how much weight will his name continue to have with the next person? Anyway, so we're here to talk about Actium. So let's talk geography here. Where in space did, in, in space, where, <laughs> where did the, ba- we're in the world, <laughs> right? Where did the battle take place? What was the setting? And how did geography, physical setting, impact events on that day? Okay, so the battle takes place right off the northwestern coast of Greece. If you know Greece at all, it's south of the island of Corfu. It's on the mainland. Actium is located at the entrance to the Gulf of Ambracia, which is a um, a wide, uh, calm gulf. And it's a great place to dock a fleet, which is why Antony and Cleopatra have their warships there. They have the better space in terms of um, of a harbor. Octavian's fleet has to be based to the north, a few miles to the north. His, his headquarters is about five miles north. So at the entrance to the Gulf, there are these two promontories, one on the north side, one on the south side. Actium's on the south side. And Antony and Cleopatra have their camp on the south side. Octavian has his camp on the north side. They're on the flats, and he is in the hills. Being in the hills is probably an advantage because, first of all, he has he can see what's going on. And secondly, his men are sheltered from mosquitoes and malaria. Being on the flats, you're more at risk of, of malaria. But he doesn't have nearly as good a harbor. He has to dock or beach his ships in a harbor on the sea itself, on the Ionian Sea. Uh, and there they're more open to the north wind. And the north wind, the wind blows from the northwest every day, every afternoon, or I should say most days. So that is a problem. Fortunately for him, his Admiral Agrippa 
manages to defeat a squadron of Antony's ships and also gets a base south of Actium on the island of Lefkas, modern Greek Lefkada, ancient Lucas, the island of Lucas. So now they, they surround Antony. They have harbors both to the north and south of Actium. Uh, and on Lucas, they have a very good harbor. So uh, they're well set up. In your book, did you talk about um, disease and malaria and what role that played in the camps? Yeah. Well, we think it plays a big role in Antony's camp. So the brilliance of the strategy that Octavian and Agrippa adopt at Actium is that they make war on the enemy's strategy rather than on the enemy's army. And they cut off Antony and Cleopatra's men from their supplies. You can't feed an army and navy from Greece alone. You can't feed a big army and navy from Greece alone. Greece is a relatively poor country. It's not agriculturally rich. You have to import food. And they had a long supply chain stretching all the way back to Egypt and Syria, bringing food to their forces. And so what Octavian and Agrippa do is they cut the supply chain. Six months before the battle, they capture their major supply base in southwestern Greece. So it's hard for supplies, food to get to uh, the army and navy at Actium. And also the men, as I said, they're on this low-lying land where there are going to be mosquitoes, there's going to be malaria, there's going to be dysentery, there's going to be disease. And while they're there month after month after month, they're there for nearly a year, it's going to take its toll, it's going to lead to death, illness, desertion. They run out of men. Yeah, so basically in the lead up to the battle, Antony and Cleopatra's army is already quite weakened by hunger and by disease. Yes. Interestingly, people may not remember this because we dropped these episodes on Cleopatra and Mark Antony a while ago, but um, this was not a land battle. This was a sea battle, but Mark Antony had a large army that was land-based, and he wound up not using that army. Yes. Well, Antony, if he'd had his druthers, he would have fought on land. He challenged Octavian to a battle, and he was hoping Octavian would come out from his camp and agree to fight on land. But Octavian was too shrewd for that and refused to do so. So that was one reason they had to fight at sea. The other reason is once Antony and Cleopatra realized that they had no choice except to break out from Actium, then the odds of escaping were better by sea than by land. The army would have to fight through Greece. They'd have to be fed. It is a very long march back to Egypt from Greece. Uh, It would have been a very, very difficult thing uh, for them to do. And they were essentially in hostile territory at this point. It's not that it's hostile territory. It's just that uh, it's not their home base and they still are going to have the problems of feeding the army. If they're by sea, they can move more rapidly. They've still got a friendly base in the south of the Peloponnesus, Cape Tynarum. And from there, they can make their way back to North Africa and to to Egypt. The other factor is, in some ways, the most valuable thing that they have is Cleopatra's treasure. They have a huge part, if not all, of the uh, enormous treasure of Egypt. And they feel rightly that they are more likely to be able to escape with it at sea than they are on land. This dovetails into the big question that I have, which is, um, you know, about the breakout, but I want to save that for later because I'm also really interested in triremes. So this is actually, this is so fascinating to me. I remember uh, researching this also and just getting into, you know, what is a trireme? What was it like to serve on a trireme? These were the warships of ancient Greece and Rome. How did warfare work on a trireme? Who were the people manning these ships? What was it like to serve on one? And were there bathrooms? 
<laughs> Great question. Uh, just a minor correction, first of all. There were triremes at Actium, but the main ships in the battle were quinqueremes. So they're slightly bigger than triremes. Like triremes, they're oared ships. But instead of having three men to a room, they have five men to a room. So each each set, uh, each room, as we call them, would have had five men in it. We're not exactly sure how the setup was, but it, uh, one possible reconstruction is there are three men on the top oar and then one man each on the middle and on the bottom oar. Question. Um, when you say a room... Okay, so we've got oars, and there are levels of oars. So there'd be like three lines of, of oars on this giant boat. If you imagine a, an elevator or a staircase, or let's have a staircase, you've got someone on the top stair, someone on the middle stair, someone on the bottom stair. And that's repeated again and again and again along the boat and on either side of the boat. So if you've got three men on the top oar and then one on the middle and one on the bottom, was the top oar the heaviest oar to like be rowing and the other two were more for like directions or or were they just super strong people at the bottom? Well, they might have been they might have been stronger people in the bottom and maybe more experienced rowers. Yeah, no, it's a really good question. It's a really good question. Another possible reconstruction is two, two and one. So there's a lot we don't know about how the oars functioned. There's a lot we don't know about how the oars function. And, you know, we are dependent upon images of the ships that we have and a little bit of information that we get from the written sources. It's not like a Viking ship. We actually have Viking ships. The Vikings buried ships and we've got the ships. So we don't have to guess what these ships were like because we know what the ships were like. But we don't have any ancient warships. Recently, we found rams, quite a few rams from ancient warships. They've been found in different places in the Mediterranean. There's one off the coast of Israel that's very important from the point of view of research. More recently, underwater archaeology has found, I think, about two dozen rams off the western coast of Sicily, the Battle of the Agates Islands, which is the last naval battle of the First Punic War in 242. BC, and that tells us a lot about uh, the state of the art of naval warfare in that period, though uh, scholarship being scholarship, not without a lot of debates as to uh, what was really going on. So we've got the setup of the how the rowing would have worked and how where the people would have sat. So what did it look like when you were at battle on these ships? Like, how did they fight? Okay, so if you're one of the great question, if you're one of the rowers, you're not going to see much. You know, you're going to be inside this very noisy, closed off place, uh, and you're entirely dependent on other people to save your lives. On a one of these quinkerims, there are going to be a, a lot of marines as well. So if a ship has got a full complement. You've got 300 rowers and 120 legionaries on top of the ship. And as the fleets close with each other, they're going to be shooting arrows and catapult balls at each other, or bolts at any rate. So reinforced arrows, are they're going to be shooting at each other. And some men are going to be on towers, portable towers that they, uh, they set up for the battle on the ship as they go in. So it's going to be loud. It's going to be violent. One tool that they used in other battles, we don't know that they used it at Actium, is a kind of harpoon. So they would shoot off a harpoon at the other ship that would attach to the other ship, and uh, the ship would be fixed, and you could draw your ship closer and attack it that way, perhaps send your men across, even on board the other ship, Errol Flynn style. So there are many different ways. But in these battles, 
once the fleets draw close to each other, uh, then it's a matter of ramming or of shearing off the oars of the enemy ship. In this period of naval combat, ships are built with reinforced prows. And we know that Antony and Cleopatra's ships had especially strong reinforced prows. So they're able to engage in head-to-head battle. Earlier in the age of the Trireme, so in the 5th century BC, until some innovations at the end of the 5th century, the ships can't engage in head-to-head ramming. You have to ram the enemy amidships in order to be able to withdraw your own ship and not lose your ram when you attack. So you basically have to hit the uh, enemy ship like a T-bone. You have to T-bone them. Yeah, in the tri- in the age of the Trireme, in this period, you don't have to do that. You can actually go head-to-head against the enemy ship. And and Antony and Cleopatra ships, as I said, they're especially strong and reinforced, and they would have a real advantage in this if all other things were equal. Who are these rowers? Because I remember seeing uh, something in your book about how some of them were press-ganged, and there is the cliche of, of rowers on triremes being, and quinqueremes and everything being enslaved people. Would that have been the case? Oh, most definitely some of them would have been enslaved people without any question. I don't think they would have been chained to their oars. That, I think, was unnecessary and doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But yes, uh, they were press gang. Absolutely. Some of them, some of their masters would have sent them into, into service for them. In some cases, they would have been press ganged, as you said, essentially kidnapped into service. In other cases, this would be their military service to uh, whoever the ruler of their country was. Because Antony and Cleopatra have a coalition. It's not just... Roman citizens and legionaries, but it's also quite a large number of men from allied states. What was it like to live on one of these boats? Uh, Bathrooms, for instance. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you didn't actually live on them. Um, These boats usually were not at sea overnight very long. So you're mostly living on land and either docking or beaching your ships every night. And so you'd go ashore. But bathrooms... Not so much. <laughs> Not so much the side of the ship. When you're rowing, um, you're sweating so much that you're not going to have to go to the bathroom. That's a good point. <laughs> Speaking as a rower, I can tell you, um, no, it doesn't happen. Um, it's amazing. You can be out on the water for a long time and um, no, you're not going to have to go to the bathroom. <laughs> There's not a whole lot of moisture left in your body. <laughs> This is a really good realistic point. <laughs> yes. I mean, like they could be at sea for a couple of days. And then, of course, bathrooms do become sort of an issue. We can imagine that they had pots and they would then, you know, pour the pot over the side of the ship. But these are not real comfy places. <laughs> not at all. So you said that they weren't out on the sea for very long. So were these boats that were particularly made to get somewhere quickly and not sort of like for long voyages? Well, so, uh, for example, when Agrippa has his raid six months before Actium, and it takes him several days to get from southern Italy to the place he's attacking in southwestern Peloponnesus, a lot of the traveling is going to be done by sail. These boats all have sails, and as much as possible, you want to use the wind. So rowers can sleep, so rowers can rest. I mean, the other thing is uh, they go in in, uh, in, in cycles. They take turns. Uh, there will be one group that will sleep while the other will row. I can tell you when, when people are practicing with racing eights, often, you know, you'll have one part of the boat will be resting while the other part of the boat will be rowing. 
and it's partly to rest people, but it's also partly to train them to practice, to hone in on, on their skills. So something like that, we can be sure happen on ancient ships as well. Yeah, that's a really good point. Like rowing is a skill, so they'd have to be very coordinated. It's a skill. If they're going into battle, they strip them down to battle. They take off the masts. They take off the sails. Um, there's not going to be a lot of food on these ships. So if you're going on a long expedition, you're going to want to have supply ships with you as well. Uh, you could carry some food. They ate a lot of basically en- high energy food, like sesame paste sort of things with sesame and honey. And of course, they need to have a lot of water and they undoubtedly have to stop from time to time to get water. Water is going to be a big problem uh, for these people. Logistically, it's going to be one of their major problems. Yeah, that's that's one of the impressions that I get because you're losing all your water in this in this very you know strenuous activity. Pro- that's probably like the biggest sort of just practical need. Just a practical need. Again, if you're going any distance, you're going to be using the wind, so that will help some. But you're still going to need a lot of water. Yeah, I'm just I'm thinking back to that beach with Antony and Cleopatra and the dysentery and where their water is coming from because water is something you can carry. But eventually, like, you have to find fresh water. Um, It's a really good question. This is a a, this is a pretty this is a rather well watered part of Greece. And I know that on the northern side where Octavian is, there are a lot of natural springs. Transform your home in one weekend with paint from Menards. Get a paint that combines durability and gorgeous color. Dutch Boys DuraClean Interior Paint and Primer in One offers Stay Clean technology, making your home stay beautiful and clean longer. And with Dutch Boys Easy Opening Smooth Pouring Container, transforming your home has never been easier. Save big money on Dutch Boy paints and head into Menards to get your paint project started today. Save big money at I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, And was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MKUltra? Wait, what? (laughs) Anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. We have some big personalities on both sides of this divide here. Octavian, Agrippa, Mark Antony, Cleopatra. How do you think everyone's personalities contributed to how this battle played out? Well, that's a really great question. So Cleopatra is a strategist. She's hyper-intelligent. 
she's also a nationalist and she's looking out for the interests of herself, her dynasty and her country. And she's, she controls the money. So that gives her a certain amount of veto power on what Antony is going to do. And it's been speculated, though we don't know, that one of the reasons why the fleet stays in Greece and they don't cross to Italy is because Cleopatra doesn't want to risk it. She doesn't want to go that far away from home. Another possibility, the other side of the story, is Antony doesn't want to risk invading Italy with Cleopatra because that would be negative propaganda since Octavian has made a big deal up about Cleopatra's presence and saying that Antony's under the thumb of Cleopatra. It's a foreign Egyptian woman who's running the whole show. So there's that. Antony is a soldier's soldier. He may not be as good a strategist as Cleopatra or Octavian. I think in some sense, he wants to refight the Battle of Philippi, which is his greatest success. And at Philippi, he got the enemy who had control of the sea to come out and fight on land. And I think that that's what he's hoping will happen at Actium. He knows that Octavian and Agrippa have a lot of naval experience, and he's hoping that they'll come out and fight and he'll be able to defeat them on land. Octavian and Agrippa, they do have a lot of naval experience, and they're very cunning, they're very strategic. I also think that they're more willing to take risks than Antony and Cleopatra are. It may be that Antony, who's now in his 50s, has become risk averse. He's had a lot of military failures. He's had a lot of ups and downs in his military career, and he might want to play it safe. He avoids, he turns down the riskiest strategy, crossing the Ionian Sea and invading southern Italy and trying to take a fortified city. He has a fleet that, in theory, could do that, but he decides not to do it. Octavian's a lot younger. Octavian's, you know, in his early 30s, as is Agrippa, and they have adopted a much riskier strategy of crossing the Ionian Sea at the very beginning of the sailing season when it's still windy, trying to take Antony's main supply base by storm, and they succeed. So they play that and they keep going after Antony and Cleopatra's supplies, cutting them off further and further and further, and having the discipline to refuse a land battle, to absolutely refuse a land battle, to starve the enemy out, to wait the enemy out. So that's one way in which the personalities are, inv- are involved. It's like a combination of um, risk-taking and discipline on Octavian and Agrippa's side, which is really interesting. Do you think the widespread knowledge of sort of Julius Caesar's commentaries, which Octavian and Agrippa would have known about, might have been to a disadvantage to Antony? Because that was kind of his playbook of how he learned to soldier, right? Because he he served with Caesar. You see some of the stuff that Antony and Agrippa are doing are kind of the stuff you saw Caesar doing at different points in his career. And it's kind of like he's going back and forth and Antony is using some of the similar strategies. Do you think they've kind of just outguessed him in some places? That's a really interesting question. I hadn't thought of that. Uh, Is there anything in particular from Caesar's commentaries that you were thinking of? I'm just thinking like Caesar would, he would sail his, his boats when you weren't expecting, right? He'd be like, oh, it's winter. Nobody sails. Let's go. Let's go to Gaul. You know, like, let's go to wherever we're going. You know, the importance that he had when he was doing stuff was that supply chain. And I think you can see that Antony kind of isn't invested in that in the same way. But like that's what is decisive when, you know, you're fighting is to have a good supply chain. You know, Caesar's commentaries were very widespread. You could see the role Antony played in the army because Octavian and Agrippa are much better strategists. Is there something they're exploiting? Yeah, I mean, the, the answer is I don't know, but it's a really interesting thought, a really interesting possibility. 
Yeah, I love it. I really love that idea. I definitely think that one of the reasons why Octavian wins, one of the big reasons, is he's willing to take a big risk. And Caesar, as you know, as you rightly point out, he's the master of strategic risks. He takes risks, but they're not crazy risks. They're well thought out. They're calculated risks. And, you know, I think that Antony's biggest mistake was he should have invaded Italy. I think it was a really bad idea to sit on the defensive as he did. Uh, I think he should have taken the initiative. I think with the fleet he had, he should have just gone for it. And if you look back at Caesar's record, like that's probably what he would have done. I think you're right. I think that probably is what he would have done. I think that's that's really an excellent point. So that's the Caesar in Octavian. And one of my hobby horses is I think people underestimate Octavian because he wasn't physically imposing on the battlefield and he wasn't a great battlefield commander. But he was courageous. He did fight in battle. And I think that when it came to strategy, he was every bit as much of a risk taker as Caesar. He was quite ruthless. And I think that's one of the reasons why Caesar chooses him and doesn't choose Antony. You know, Caesar, in the last year of his life, as it turns out, he says, I'm I'm picking this guy. He's my heir. It's true that he is closer genetically to Caesar than Antony is. Antony's mother is a distant cousin of Caesar. Octavian's mother is Caesar's niece. That makes a big difference. But also, Octavian has spent six months or more with Caesar in Spain in the mopping up campaign in 45 BC. And Caesar gets to know this kid and says, he's got the X factor. He's got what it takes uh, in order to succeed. You know, I'm, I'm putting my chips on his table. I think that's super true. And I'm just thinking about, you know, when Pompey's defeated in Greece, like there's a lot of knowledge that Caesar would have known and potentially passed on to Octavian of what it's like to fight there and what it's like when your supply chain breaks down and like because Pompey had quite a big army there and obviously this is the route they're going to take because the route he winds up taking is back to Egypt so it's possible that there was a maybe something about keeping them in that area and breaking down that supply chain um, that was maybe even more strategic no it's it's I think it's really great I think it's something that Octavian might very well have learned from Caesar and that Antony Antony should have learned. But again, I'm just really, I keep being strong. Antony certainly knows logistics is important and he does have this long supply chain, but it's very vulnerable. It's very vulnerable. And I'm really struck by the fact that he's not taking the risk. That seems to me a very uncesarian thing to do. And I thank you for pointing that out because I really like it. I think it's true. It's Octavian and Agrippa. They're, they're doing the Caesar thing. They're doing what Caesar would. What would Caesar have done? What would Caesar do? <laughs> I mean, maybe you should, if you're asking that a lot in your life, you should question your life choices, but I think it's applicable here. Yeah, I, I don't think we want to model ourselves on Caesar. He was also a ruthless, violent, murderous dictator, but but also a brilliant, also a literary genius. Oh God, he'd be so happy to hear you say that. He was. <laughs> so he's so happy. He's like, oh, have you heard my poetry? <laughs> Fortunately, we, we don't have that, fortunately. I told Julius Caesar in our episode that the best thing about his poetry is that none of it had come down to us. <laughs> That's probably true. That's the way I see it. And I think it's also a really good point. He would have known both of these people. Like Julius Caesar had, Mark Antony was his right-hand guy. He knew Mark Antony really well. Like a lot of people, including Antony, saw him as his natural rightful heir. Like Julius Caesar didn't pick him for a reason. He knew this guy. Yeah, yeah. I think that's true. He also wasn't really Caesar's closest aides. You know, Caesar 
And I'm sorry, I'm blanking on the names. Lepidus? Nah, not so much Lepidus, but... Um, Lepidus is just Lepidus. <laughs> Lepidus, Lepidus is just Lep- Lepidus, but there, there, are, there are a couple of other guys who Caesar depends upon more. The one who's the gatekeeper who keeps Cicero waiting. I forget his name, but, you know, a major person in, in, in Caesar's entourage. Uh, Antony is not his closest bud. Absolutely not his closest, but he is, he's important. But Caesar's also demoted Antony at one point because Antony messed up the politics in Rome while Caesar was, while Caesar was away. So Antony knows that, excuse me, Caesar knows that Antony's not entirely reliable. The thing that I love about Mark Antony is like, in a lot of ways, he's the epitome of failing up, right? He just, when he succeeds, it's, it's up, you know, but he, he makes such a spectacle of himself so many times. I'm thinking of the time he had a was it chariot driven by lions through the streets of, of Rome. He's just he always strikes me as being very fun, but also kind of a mess. Yeah, I think that's an understatement. <laughs> that's true, and that's a perfectly reasonable reading of Antony. I have a slightly higher opinion of him. I mean the guy the guy does negotiate a really fantastic diplomatic settlement in the East. And it's so good that Octavian just takes it over with very few changes. Uh, he's the guy who makes it work. Antony, say what you will. Antony is the he, he achieves what many Romans have wanted for over a century. He's the guy who basically gets Egypt in his hip pocket. He's the guy who becomes you know who adds Egypt to his portfolio. This is something that many Romans had wanted and had feared that somebody else would do. He's really set up to win it all. Just is lacking, he's lacking that risk-taking, killer, ruthless, go-for-broke thing that Caesar had and that that Octavian has. And and I think that's what makes him fail. Do you think it's because he was, like, resting on his laurels? Like, he had more to lose, you know? Like, whereas Octavian and Agrippa, maybe they were aware of the position that Anthony had. Really, he has the the position of he should have won. And maybe he's more risk-averse because of that. I think so. He's older. He's also had a lot of hard knocks. I mean, he's failed both at Mutina and then again in Parthia. So he's he's seen himself fail and he might just be slower, more risk averse. And also Octavian has this great relationship with his number two. You know, Agrippa's not going to give him any guff, but Octavian knows when to back off. Uh, Antony has a more difficult relationship with Cleopatra, who has her own interests and in some ways is probably smarter than him. They're not necessarily moving to the same beat all the time. I think it's a leadership failure as well. Yeah, that's a really good point, because um, like, as you said, Cleopatra is the one who holds the purse strings here. It's not like Antony really had free reign to do all the things he might have wanted to do anyway. Right. Yeah. No, I agree. So let's look at the big question, right? The elephant in the room, shall we say. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So as some of our listeners may remember, the big thing that happened at the Battle of Actium is that as the battle starts to commence, Cleopatra broke through Agrippa's line. She breaks through the armada with a significant number of ships, and she flees back to Alexandria. And Antony, as soon as he sees her go, he leaps into his fastest ship and goes after her and abandons the battle, abandons his men to their fate. And I have seen this presented as, well, Cleopatra just lost her nerve. She had no faith in Mark Antony. She did it to save herself. And then he just went after her because he's a lovesick idiot. And I've seen this presented as 
this is an entirely planned thing that Antony was in on. And you, as you've said before, go with the latter. It was planned. What is it that convinced you that this is the case? That's a great question. So here we have the, the big problem, the small problem. The big problem is we only have one side's version of the Battle of Antium. We only have the winner's version of the battle. And this is a very fraught moment for Octavian, the later Augustus. He has to show himself winning over the East, but he also has to try to hide the fact, play down the fact which he's killing fellow Romans. And this is a battle in the Civil War. So there's everything in it for him to blame Cleopatra and to go with the party line, which is that she's unmanned a once great Roman. So that's the story we get in the ancient sources. None of the ancient sources says this was planned. They all say that she lost her nerve, she betrayed Antony, and he either was so unmanly that either he planned to follow her or that he just lost his nerve and lovesick way followed her. And I guess my line, and I'm certainly not alone in this, is that I don't buy it. I just think it's propaganda. It makes a whole lot more sense to think of this as a breakout battle, planned as a breakout battle, with the option that, hey, if things turned out surprisingly right, they might actually win the battle. And one of the reasons to think it's a breakout battle is they put their masts and their sails on the ship. You never do this if you're fighting an ancient battle. The only reason to do it is because you want to take advantage of the wind to escape. If that's the case, then it's hard to believe they don't have a plan to escape. And actually, as it turns out, the plan to escape is a pretty good plan. The only part that is a little hard to swallow is why is Mark Antony, who's supposed to be a noble Roman, why is he abandoning his men? That's really not what a Roman general should do. And there are a couple of possibilities. One is he's a coward or he's lovesick, and it's emotional in one way or another. Yeah, well, maybe, but I don't really buy that. I, I prefer to believe that he had made a cold-blooded decision that this is what he was going to do if things didn't work their way in the beginning of the battle. And he was going to leave his men to their fate, to go with Cleopatra, to hope that as many of his ships as possible would follow him, and that they could somehow live to fight again another day. There are other possibilities. They knew that, in a way, leaving their army there was a poison chalice for Octavian. Because the good news for Octavian was that he could get those men to come over to his side. The bad news was that he had to pay all those people and he had to get land for his veterans. And he didn't have any money to do that. The only way to get the money was Cleopatra's treasury. So he still needed to get Cleopatra's treasury. Cleopatra might already have been saying to Mark Antony, I got a plan. We are going to build a new fleet and we're going to escape to India, which she tries to do. And it only fails because the Nabataean Arabs, her, her enemies, burn the fleet. They prevent her from doing it. Antony might have still hoped against hope that some of his garrisons in the east would rally to his support. He might have hoped against hope that more of his ships would escape from the battle than did. So it is a very cold-blooded decision and heartless in a way, but not without some thought that he could uh, live again. After all, Douglas MacArthur leaves his men in the Philippines, and it's not because he's a bad general, because he thinks I can live to fight again another day. True, he had more resources waiting for him than Mark, Mark Anthony can reasonably expect to have at this period. But Sometimes people have to make hard decisions. When we were discussing this on the podcast, you know, the on the one hand, they put the sails on the boats, which is not something that you do 
On the other hand, Mark Antony's a Roman. He's a good Roman soldier. He's a soldier's soldier. He knows that if he abandons his men on the battlefield, he's going to have a hard time getting people to follow him after that. So this is the catch-22. But he's got all this money. And if you have money, you can pay people. You can pay mercenaries. Someone's going to want that money. I was just going to say, I'm just thinking about the propaganda of the sources and why the ancient sources might have had a real infested interest in Cleopatra being the bad guy and Mark Antony being lovesick. And it's because when you look at how interconnected my my whole thing, my big arc was on the Julian Claudian, the early Julian Claudians. When you look how interconnected that family becomes later, it's really important that Mark Antony retains some sense of like being a soldier, soldier, being a good leader and being sort of like, I don't know, unmanned by this woman. Because otherwise, how do you deal with Augustus's succession problem and his eventual heirs? And some of those heirs do come from his sister's children with Antony. Um, Eventually, Caligula comes down that line as well. How do you deal with it unless maybe there's something defective in what happens when men are unmanned by women, which is also ancient misogyny, but you know. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's the, the propaganda is a convenient way. That being said, I have to admit that I'm violating a rule that one of my teachers told me in graduate school. He said, don't be one of these people who, when you doesn't like the evidence he has, gets the evidence he likes. And in a way, I'm doing that because I'm saying, here's what the ancient evidence says, but I reject it. At least I reject it on, I think, reasonable grounds that, well, they did put the masts and the sails on the ship. So that means they were seriously thinking about breaking out. And if you look at other breakout naval battles in history, and we have some, you don't break out with most of your ships. You take serious losses. So the fact they take serious losses is it doesn't mean that they're failing tactically. I think tactically they're succeeding. Of course, they should never have been in this position in the first place. And that points to an absolutely monumental error on their part. They got to this this position. Yeah, staying on that beach, because another Caesarian move would be, if you don't like the way that things are set, you take your ball and you move elsewhere. That's an excellent point. I mean, I think that's really an excellent point. I mean, they've, they've blown it already uh, well before the battle, time of battle ever has. It's Valeus Paterculus, the ancient source, who says that Octavian had won before the battle. And I think to a certain large extent, that's true. I love this as a case study of how having the most money and the best technology doesn't mean you're going to win. Very, very true. Yeah. Agrippa's and Octavian's armada was not as advanced as Mark Antony and Cleopatra's. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. Antony and Cleopatra had the better ships when it comes to state of the art. Their prows were were stronger. They'd been better reinforced. And they had some of these, if you will, super tankers. Uh, They had some of these very large ships, sixes and eights and tens, which would not be tremendously useful in a battle unless you had very strong, well-fed, rested rowers, because then you could have a serious punch when you were ramming. But they would be very useful if your plan was to attack a fortified harbor and you wanted to break through. That's what they'd be useful for. And the Ptolemies used to do that. This, this wasn't so much a Roman thing as it was a Ptolemaic thing. It's reasonable to speculate that it was Ptolemaic naval architects who had built these ships. But Antony and Cleopatra don't use them for that. They don't. They fail. Right. They're not using them for what they were designed for. <laughs> So 
Once the battle devolves, once Antony and Cleopatra have left, what becomes of the rest of Mark Antony's fleet? And I'm really interested in how Agrippa and Octavian use fire here. Yeah, they use fire. They use uh, uh, fire against the enemy ships. And is that because the enemy is fighting so fiercely that this is the easiest way to get rid of them? On the one hand, they might not want to do that because then they won't have the ships for them to use on their own. On the other hand, they might reason, we don't need these ships anymore. We've defeated the enemy fleet, so let's just get rid of them the cheapest and easiest way we can without taking more casualties of our own. What would this fire warfare in the sea look like? Flaming arrows with pitch. <laughs> pitch set of set of flame. I don't think it would have taken very much to start a fire on a on a wooden ship. I think it would have been pretty easy, pretty low tech. And they're not going to do it while Cleopatra's treasure's around, because that's the last thing they want to do is sink her treasure. But once she's gone, they might think, what the hey, we can end this thing now. It's really interesting that you said if Octavian takes on all these soldiers, he's going to have to get land grants for all these soldiers. And I remember, you know, this was a big problem between uh, Octavian and Fulvia, previously, like getting land grants for soldiers, he basically had to go to war over this. Yes, that's right. Yeah, he wants money. You know, the more money he can give them, the less land he has to give them, or the more money he can pay others to relocate. So it's really a problem. And, you know, after Actium, he's already in the East, and he has to go all the way back to Italy the next winter to deal with a mutiny. And he's there for a month. He never goes to Rome. He's just in southern Italy to deal with this mutiny. On the way back to Italy, he's in a storm and he almost drowns. His ship is almost sunk. Now, just imagine that. What would have happened if a few months after the Battle of Actium, Octavian's killed? He dies at sea. Then what? Suddenly, this doesn't look like the most decisive victory in history, does it? I mean, if you're Cleopatra in particular, you might say to Antony, you know, it ain't over. <laughs> it ain't completely over. Yeah, this guy could step on a splinter and die of an infection tomorrow. <laughs> he could get tetanus. Also, presumably, like, we, we all know that it eventually ends in Alexandria. But, like, when Julius Caesar came to Alexandria, wasn't the city, like, in a civil war? Wasn't it besieged? Wasn't he, like, locked in, in, the, in the palace for, you know, a year with Cleopatra doing who knows what? That's right. Yeah. Oh, we knew what they were doing. <laughs> But coming into Alexandria as an invading army, there is a precedent for being able to hold off an invading army for quite a long time, particularly ships. Excellent point. But also, Egypt has two, it's hard to invade. It's got natural defenses, natural fortifications in the east and in the west. And if Antony and Cleopatra can hold those, they can hold off a land invasion. They don't hold those. Partly, it's said, the sources say, because Cleopatra has decided to dump Antony at this point. And... She'd rather try to make a deal with Octavian. Now, that's an interesting thing as well, because we talked about this in our podcast. She could have had him poisoned at any point, and she doesn't. What are your thoughts on that? You know, one of the hardest problems for any historian is the role of love in history. And the default mode for historians is to say, love schmuv. History is about power. And I think that's really problematic. I think that people are actually more motivated by love than we ever want to admit, certainly more than God, most guys ever want to admit. And I don't rule out the possibility that Cleopatra just couldn't bring herself to do it, that 
she loved this guy in some way, and she's not going to poison him. There's also the minor problem that he is the father of three of her four children, and she might not want that rap as well. She has to deal with those kids. It seems that in extremis, she is willing to take the rap of giving him the false news, the disinformation that she's dead, so he'll commit suicide, fall on his sword like a Roman, like a noble Roman. That gives her plausible deniability, as you said before, in the case of sexist Pompey. And she could say, hey, I, it's not my fault your father committed suicide. He died like a hero. Uh, but to actually poison him, mm, I'm not sure that she would want to do that. And if she did, then what's the message to Octavian? You can trust this woman? I don't think so. It is a really hairy problem, right? Because I believe, you know, it's been a while since I covered this, but I remember that at one point when both Mark Antony and Cleopatra had opened their own back channels separately to Octavian, Octavian said to Cleopatra, listen, I'll let you keep your kingdom and pass it down to your kids if you off this guy. And she doesn't. But then you look at it, you, it's through this, you know, real smoky looking glass, right? Because he comes back in after like his last loss, you know, he comes back in and he's saying violent things. I remember Jen and I discussing whether domestic violence was a threat here. And maybe she fled to her tomb because she was scared of what he was going to do to her. I think that's a really interesting point. I think that's a really valid point. Of course, this has to be speculative. But yeah, I, I think that none of these things can be ruled out again. So the default mode among historians is saying it's all about power, it's all about cunning, it's all about shrewdness. And yeah, maybe, but we can't rule out the fact that these people were also human beings and they had they had emotions. I am sure that for Cleopatra, you know, as the end game nears, she's thinking, my main priority is my children and my dynasty, and I want to save them. And if necessary, I'll take my own life. I'll certainly sacrifice Antony but I would even sacrifice myself if that's what it takes to to save my children. Absolutely. And I think a lot of times it's great to romanticize this like Romeo and Juliet-esque-ness that you get from Shakespeare of their life and their romance and their end, obviously. But one of the things that I think a lot of people forget about Cleopatra is she's been in exile. She's been on the wrong end of ruling and what it's like when you're thrown out and what that looks like when a foreign state chooses a brother over a sister. Um, she knows that if things aren't safe for her children, well, as everything is crumbling, that there isn't going to be much future for her. And, I, you know, we don't know anything about their relationship. We don't know if there was domestic violence. We don't know anything about Antony's mindset at this point in time. He was just deeply depressed. And he, you know, she doesn't abandon him because she doesn't love him. It's just, what am I going to do? We have these three children. We've got a fourth one who Octavian just can't wait to get his hands on. <laughs> that is his uh, legitimate competition. And also not just that, there's the people of Egypt to think about. Like, how are they going to be treated fairly? Like, there isn't a lot she can do except barter with Octavian. And one of the things that I remember when Jenny, um, Jenny did the primary research on this whole arc, when Jenny brought it to me at the end, I just kept thinking how amazing Cleopatra was when she has her showdown with Octavian. And she's like, yeah, no, the step too far is I'm not going to walk at the triumph like I made Julius Caesar do to my sister. Yes. Yeah, she is really amazing. It is. It is. It is an absolutely amazing story. And I will say, too, Shakespeare was drawing from Plutarch. And Plutarch was drawing from, like, old family stories about his relatives being whipped over the mountains carrying grain for Mark Antony's soldiers. Yeah, I know. I think it's Plut It's my favorite Plutarch life. And I like, I like many of the Plutarch lies. I think the Antony is his masterpiece. And 
my opinion. I'm, I'm not the only one who thinks that. It's and it's partly because he's drawing from these old family stories and stories about feasts at Cleopatra's court as well in Alexandria. How would the world be different today if this battle had gone differently? It's a great question. Uh, I've been asked that many times. I think the center of gravity of the Roman Empire would have would have shifted eastward. Alexandria would have become, in effect, a second capital, like Constantinople, except centuries earlier. The Roman Empire, as we know it, in some ways is a misnomer. I think it was the Greco-Roman Empire. The eastern half of the empire, the Greek-speaking half, became more and more prominent culturally and then ultimately politically and even militarily. And I think you would have seen that happen earlier. Antony, had he won, I'm convinced would have gone back to war with Parthia, uh, and that would have been his major emphasis. I don't think the Romans would have been so quick to want to conquer Germany, as happened under Augustus. And of course, they mostly fail. I'm not convinced they would have conquered Britain. They may have, maybe yes, maybe no. It would have been less important to them. I think they would have been looking eastward. I think Greek would have become even more important in Latin than it was. I think we might be speaking a language today that had more Greek root than it does Latin roots. And I think Roman civilization would have developed more like Byzantine civilization. That was, is to say, I think it would have been more hierarchical. I think it would have been more authoritarian. You'd see something like Byzantine Rome instead of the Rome that does develop. Not that the Rome that does develop is all that freewheeling. But it's more so, I think, than it would have happened uh, if Antony and Cleopatra had won. Yeah, this is what's super interesting about this analysis is that the thought that democracy would not be as ascendant, I mean, not to say it doesn't have problems in the modern world, because it does, but the fact that democracy might not be as ascendant now, but by the time this happened, Rome was transitioning out of a democracy and into what's essentially a military dictatorship, and it stays that way for the rest of the time. Yes, and it becomes much more of a military dictatorship later on under the Severans and then under Diocletian and Constantine. I suspect it would have been more like that in the earlier period. I think it would have been more beautiful. (laughs) (laughs) It was very beautiful under Augustus, but of course he gets a lot of his ideas from Egypt and from Hellenistic art from both of those places. I think you would have seen even more of that if Antony and Cleopatra had had won. It, it's it's a fascinating thought as to what it'd been like, but but more Eastern than the way that it developed is what I expect you would have seen. You mean beautiful in terms of architecture? In terms of architecture, in terms of art, maybe even in terms of literature. I mean, of course, it is very beautiful in, in all those ways, but but maybe even more so, but with more resources in the East than in the West. I think even in terms of worship, it would have been very different. Like, I'm just thinking about the cultural exchange between the different like Egyptian, Roman, Greek, and then you'd be looking at maybe, I don't know, even further East gods and actually seeing them play a role in how people worshipped and how things were built. As it is, so in Christianity, of course, the Isis cult plays a role in the development of the cult of, of the Virgin Mary. And Isis religion was very big in Rome. It's interesting to speculate if Antony and Cleopatra had won whether the religion that developed would have been more female-centered than the religion that develops in the West. Again, this is really going out on a limb, and it's very speculative. And with counterfactual history, it's hard to go more than a generation past the event you're looking at. So who knows what would have happened? But I think these are all interesting possibilities to think about. Cleopatra was definitely like divine right to rule. I mean, and Julius Caesar was for his own part, making his own legend of divine right to rule. 
But what would we have seen coming down through that dictatorship? Would it be more about divine ascendancy to rule? I think it might be. I think it might be. I'm convinced that Cleopatra whispered into Caesar's ear, listen, Julius, anyone who's any anything is a king and a god, and you need to be that. I think she then would have been saying to Antony, listen, Mark, anyone who's anything is a king and a, king and a god, and you, you're going to have to become one now. The new Dionysus, that's right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Instead of saying, hail Caesar, we might be saying, hail Antony. Instead of having a czar and a kaiser, we might have an Anton. Mark Antony would love that because he named everything after himself. (laughs) (laughs) All of his ships were the Antonia. (laughs) There would have been a lot of Antonopoluses. Oh, gosh. So many Antonopoli. (laughs) Not quite as bad as uh, Commodus, but (laughs) I also wonder if female power would have looked a lot differently. You wouldn't have just had like a ceremonial empress. You know what I mean? Like your emperor and your empress. If there would have been more overt ruling as opposed to the machinations of many of the Julian Claudian women from behind the scenes. Yeah, I mean, I mean, women had a lot of power in the imperial family, as you know. But as you say, it's behind the scenes. It's unofficial. Uh, it might have become more so. It might have become more open. It's so fascinating to speculate about all this stuff. We do a lot of um, wild speculation on the podcast, so this is very in, in tune with what we do. <laughs> Well, you guys really do your research. I'm impressed by the questions you're asking. They're really stimulating. Thank you. Yeah, we. I. this is one of, um, we've done a lot of arcs at this point, but this was one of my absolute favorite things to cover was uh, Mark Antony and Cleopatra. My big Spartacus question, I used your book and then a source book and a couple other things. But there is so little that we actually know. Like the sources are so fragmentary. And we actually made a point on the podcast of reading just how fragmentary they are. So your book was, number one, it reads like the best fiction. Number two, it is so informative about everything that was going on at that time, as far as we know. And it's called The Spartacus War, and uh, we'll put it in our notes. My big question is, why do you think he like turned around and didn't just go over the Alps? I mean, the answer, of course, is we don't know. But to speculate, I think two possibilities. One is that he felt very responsible for his men, and he went back with them because of that. And the other is he felt that it was really very risky for him to go in a small party over the Alps and try to get home. This would be like basically trying to, to go west in the United States with a wagon train with no wagons, you know, one or two wagons and try to make it on your own. I mean, this is very rough and rugged country that he was going to go over and uh, he had to survive. And it might not have been plausible to do it without, without an army. I would say those are the two factors that I think are the main ones. This is the elephant in the room of the Spartacus story is like, why why make this extremely self-destructive looking decision? But then we have to remember that we're in the future and they are not. Oh, I, I guess I should ask the other major thing. Where was Julius Caesar during the Spartacus War? Oh, we don't know. I mean, you know, he was, there's reason to believe that he was in the fighting, but we just don't know. It's the time he doesn't talk about. No, he doesn't talk about it. He, you know, in the speech to his troops before one of the battles in Gaul, I think, uh, I forget the name of the battle. It's early in, in, in the Gallic War. And he tells his men not to be worried, not to be frightened of the Germans, because after all, they had fought some barbarians in a revolt in Italy recently. He alludes to the Spartacus War uh, without actually mentioning it. He's being very cagey about it. Well, yeah, he's being very cagey about it. And remember, for the Romans, it was not a bellum. It was just a tumultus. And um, it's second rate. It's second best. Maybe he doesn't want this on his his CV. 
Well, yeah, because it's an it's a war against enslaved people, which I guess they would have thought was dishonorable even to have to fight that. Right, right, right. Yeah. My favorite thing is his cross is petitioning. <laughs> so then he could have more honor at the end of this. And I think he wanted to wear like a laurel crown instead of a myrtle crown because they couldn't give him a triumph. It was a slave uprising and it went on far too long. But he's like, okay, but you're not going to make me wear like the myrtle crown. I want the laurel crown instead. And they're like, all right, Crassus. You really get to see his ego because Pompey had come back and covered himself in glory. And, you know, he's the reason everyone won. Pompey was just the golden boy at that time. Yes, yes. Sweeping in and taking the credit. It's very good at that. This has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on. <laughs> Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Where and when can people buy your next book? Or the one that's out now. Yeah. The War That Made the Roman Empire. Yeah, it was published on March 22nd. And you can buy it anywhere, anywhere books are sold. Of course, you can get it on Amazon or Barnes and Noble online, either as a, a hardcover or as the ebook. Is it on audio? Yes, and the audiobook. Excuse me. Of course, it's an audiobook as well. Thank you. Thank you for pointing that out. Yes, there's an audiobook as well. The recording, I think, is really terrific. Uh, where can people find you on social? Uh, Twitter's best. I have a website, barrystrauss.com. Twitter's my favorite social media. That's my, my one of choice. Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next week, probably. Next week. <laughs>